I hear myself, but it's not as bad. And I'm totally cool with how this is rolling. Perfect. Welcome to the Weekly Four podcast, take three now. Uh, just some technical difficulties after never having done podcasting before. So the sound quality is definitely probably not going to be up to par, but if our kids are the ones listening to this in the future, hopefully they'll just appreciate that we even did this. I think they will. I think they'll, they'll appreciate the inspiration that we're providing here. And then once we get really popular, the worldwide audience, we will develop we'll have a much nicer studio. And here's an amber alert. That would be interesting to see if the podcast caught that. I guess we'll see that. There is an amber alert going on. I don't have it turned up on my phone. It's on your phone. Because so I care about humanity. Do you? Because you just dismissed it without looking at the person's name. <laughs> At, at this, this point, point in time, time sitting at your, your table, table, I don't know how much I can help. Well, I'm on the road. I take, I take a gander. Yeah, sure. Anyway, so this podcast was kind of just a crazy idea I had. Um, seeing other people who we both know have limited broadcasting skills do their podcasts. Like, why the hell shouldn't we do one? Uh, especially since we just love talking to each other about total nonsense but trying to give it a little bit of a framework in terms of having a kind of idea as to what we are going to be doing. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I think, think that's, that's good. good. Having, having that structure to our conversation, conversation will help guide us and inspire. Yeah. Cause if it's we just talked inspiring. about nonsense for an hour, I don't know how entertaining it would be. So I mean, people may be curious about whether or not we're in a simulation. Ah, don't get me started. That's for a future podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not prepared to do this for two hours tonight. So um, even then, it might not be enough time. But but let's get started. So this is the first one. So we're going to kind of hit on three things, sports, politics, and history in each podcast, as well as random stuff. So this gives us the flexibility to talk about anything we may be thinking about or something that doesn't fit under those three guidelines. So we'll start with sports, where um, other than the going-ons of the local Toronto team, I'm not sure how up-to-date you are with anything. I recently found out that the playoffs are happening in the NBA currently. Um, I know that the Raptors are not in that, nor are the Rockets. All and, this is correct. And that's about it. So I will enlighten you a little bit about sports uh, for this first podcast, and then maybe you'll get more into it after we discuss it. And if not, we can just go through it in five to ten minutes, and then you can do the rest. So uh, NBA playoffs is currently going on. Just started the second round. And as we are taping this, um, the Philadelphia 76ers just tied up their series at 1-1. Utah and the Clippers are underway with their game one. I'm going to talk about this series a little more in depth. Um, The other series is – wow, this is not good. I've gotten old very, very quickly that I can't remember something I just looked at. The Nets are up 2-0 on Milwaukee, and Denver is currently down 1-0 to Phoenix. I have to say, at your age, it's impressive that you remember all of that. Uh, yeah, 35 in two weeks. It's, <laughs> it's, it's very sad. I think I need to take one of those pills that they sell on television to help your memory for, like, old people. I think I need to start with one of those. So 
ever since my concussion, also for another podcast. Uh, it's just not been the same. I'm sorry. Welcome to the rest of our, us and our uh, lacking memories. Yeah, that sucks. Anyway, um, so the biggest thing right now with the NBA playoffs that you may not know is the amount of injuries. There was a very short off season between what happened post-pandemic with the bubble in Orlando and the start of this NBA season. And because of that, you have some of the great teams, the Lakers, already out of the playoffs because their co-best player, Anthony Davis, got hurt, lost him for the rest of the series. The Celtics lost their one of their two best players to injury. So you have a lot of teams getting bit by this injury bug that's typically not as often as what's happening in prior seasons. So what do they attribute that to? Um. Probably just the short rest between the years, as well as trying to skid a 72-game season in probably less days than typical. So, um, so like right now, the Utah Clipper game, the one I want to talk about, Utah is without their point guard, um, keeping Mike Conley, who is an all-star, keep them from having a complete team. And literally, this, this NBA championship run is about as wide open as it's ever been. You have Utah playing the Clippers, which the Clippers who barely survived seven games against Dallas, but they're, they're pretty healthy. They've still got to be one of the favorites, even though Dallas has taken them to seven games. Um, you have Philadelphia who's pretty healthy right now. it has been playing great despite being recently injured. Um, Atlanta, who's kind of a up and coming young team. They're playing well. Uh, Denver's had a lot of injuries in their backcourt. They would have been a favorite. They have the MVP of the league this year. It was just named Nikola Jokic at center. Um, but it's really pretty wide open. Uh, the only team that a lot of people thought would be the Nets. They have Harden, Durant, Kyrie Irving. But Harden got hurt with an injury. I've heard of two out of those three players. It's like talking NBA with a functioning idiot. That is very <laughs> accurate in terms of sports knowledge. Yes, yeah, sports knowledge. No, that's no. Fair. I wouldn't I call you a functioning that. idiot of life. That's fair. Just sports. I accept that. Yeah. Graciously. Uh, and your phone has 20% of battery left, just FYI. So hopefully we can get through this before it dies. Uh, okay. Um, so the Nets probably would have been the big favorite, but Harden goes down with an injury, but they've still steamrolled. Uh, Milwaukee the first two games so it's as if they're not missing him but there's still a lot of other teams that are better than Milwaukee that can potentially take them down without a heart injury <laughs> so Vegas probably the the swing on favorites is has really been kind of nuts like Phoenix who was the two seed was not favored to beat the Lakers the first time ever which was the seventh seed because they were the defending champions and <laughs> Lakers were up I think Two one in the series, and Phoenix's odds I think were like nine to ten to one one to win that series once they went down, and go down an injury. And if you put money down on Phoenix, you made a killing because as soon as Anthony Davis went down, it was if the Lakers collapsed. So, so let me ask you this: because of all of this, is this a more interesting playoff than historically, where it's sort of just like a given of who's going to win, unless there's some long shot upset so <laughs> it's a great question 
I love seeing the great teams try to make their way through a playoffs and seeing if anybody can stop them. Like that Warriors team that the Raptors ended up beating were a historically great team on paper, but Klay Thompson gets hurt, Durant gets hurt, and Toronto, it's not like they won a fluke championship, but it's not nearly as fun if they had beaten that team healthy. So, I mean, the Rockets are another example. Chris Paul goes down with an injury. It, it would have changed. This is about three, four years ago if we would have been able to make the finals. So a lot of things hinge on injuries. And in my perfect world, you have every team at their full power and then let the best team win in a given season. So for me, I would find this more entertaining if everybody was healthy, if the Lakers were healthy, because the NBA, what they would have loved is the Lakers versus the Nets. LeBron, Anthony Davis, Durant, Harden, Irving. That would be amazing because on paper, those two franchises are pretty evenly matched. But now, again, Harden could come back, but without the Lakers at full health, the Nets, if Harden's at full health, will be a heavy favorite. And even if he's not, will probably be a favorite to win the title. So, so you prefer a <laughs> battle of Titans. And that's actually what's made the NBA great historically. Lakers-Celtics in the 80s, Michael Jordan's Bulls teams, uh, even the Rockets. You, you having kind of these teams that were really, really good for three, four, five, and the Celtics-Lakers a decade, where these two megawatts were constantly created, and those would constantly show the highest ratings and revenues. When it's kind of been two teams that are like more teams and not superstar-driven and not large media powerhouses driven that it's just not the same excitement the games aren't as good the games may be as good but there's not as much excitement nationally the hype espn yeah and even non-sports networks Mm -hmm. about just people getting excited and without the marquee names if it's just two good teams like if it's utah in the finals against i'm trying to think atlanta the nba (laughs) Ratings would probably be the worst ever. Even though they're two very good teams and all around pretty strong, without that superstar name and marquee and great market, Utah and Atlanta aren't Boston, LA, New York, uh, Chicago. Um, it would be a disaster for the league and for the interest. So um, that's kind of my take on the playoffs. It's very interesting right now, and I'm a fan, but. It's definitely not as much excitement if you had kind of the marquee players all potentially healthy and willing to play each other. It's, it's also interesting because it shows how important rest is. If they had more time between the seasons, if the season hadn't been as intense, you would have less injuries. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. It's 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 something time after time, rest and sleep and time off is the key to productivity. So um, so that's kind of on the major NBA, but kind of on the local level. So a fascinating thing's about to happen with the Houston Rockets. Yep, I'm listening. Um, the Rockets, in two weeks from today, have a day with destiny based on ping pong balls. So the NBA every year does a lottery, and 14 ping pongs are put in a machine, and each team is given a percentage of, of the different combinations that creates odds. Okay. The Rockets have, I think, about a 14% chance at the first pick, like 
17 at the second and like 20 at the third. Wait, what's in two weeks? The draft lottery. The lottery. lottery. Okay, got it. And this is besides the order of the draft. Okay. Based off of the trades the Rockets made, they only keep their pick if it lands in the top four. Okay. Okay. So the combined percentage of the top four is about 52% that the Rockets get either one, two, three, four. Mm -hmm. If they drop to five, which is about a 47.8% chance, Mm -hmm. uh, you can do the afterwards, they lose the pick. Mm -hmm. And all the trades being the worst team in the NBA this year, it's all basically been for nothing because of this trade. So literally the biggest moment of the Rockets season comes down to ping pong balls because getting a top four pick, you get one of the first four best players coming out of amateur basketball. And if they only have the picks in the later rounds, your rebuilding process will be that much slower. So this is basically designed to discourage people from throwing a season. Yes, exactly. The original thing was back in the 80s that teams would historically tank. It's called tanking. Um, the Rockets actually That's did. That's a really creative name that they came up with for it. I just want to put that out there. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, basically the Rockets did that. They had the first pick on Ralph Sampson. And even though they had this young, great player at the time, they were still historically awful at the end. They were playing a 36-year-old Elvin Hayes like the entire game just to try to like not be as competitive. And they ended up winning, I think, the coin toss with Portland. They each had the same record and got to draft Elijah one first. The NBA saw this was happening and the next year um, was the first ever lottery. They gave, I think, each team the same odds and they perfected it over time that the worst team still had a better chance at the first pick and the first few picks. But <coughs> but it, it doesn't give you this enormous chance to get one of these best players. So it discourages it a little bit. They keep tinkering with it a little bit. But but literally, the Rockets, whether or not they had a successful season, comes down to ping pong balls. I mean, to be fair, the victory in this season comes down to a basketball. So relying on ping pong balls for the future of your season... It doesn't come down to the basketball. It comes down to the talent you have at playing the game. It's throwing a basketball. This is why I thought <laughs> I should bring somebody else on to do sports with me. No, because if you have someone else on, that's just like, oh, yes, Steven, you're so right. That's going to be really boring. I don't want them to be right, but I want them to have an opinion other than basketball is stupid. It's I didn't say basketball is stupid. Basketball isn't stupid. He's but only saying that because his daughter likes to play. She does like to play. But... I'm just saying, it's all, okay, fine, there's some skill involved, but it's all luck and involved. Yeah, but you make your own luck in life. A lot of ways. And these players, by practicing thousands and thousands of hours, uh, and repeating the same motions over and over again, are changing it from luck to skill. Hot hand fallacy? That's a great arbitrage thing that you must have read somewhere that, yes, is accurate. Although you can watch in a game these players that hit three, four in a row get into a rhythm. 
there's definitely something to a rhythm. You can see it literally in the Philly game tonight when a guy came off the bench who barely played, hit the first three, hit the second three, then hit two more right away. And this is not some amazing shooter. Obviously, he's got skill, but you find a rhythm. I've played basketball a lot of times, and there are certain times where it feels like I can't miss and I'll shoot way better than other times when I can go cold. And, and there's definitely something to having a hot hand, but to constantly have it and saying that certain players are more prone to it is a better conversation. Fair. I accept that. And to be, you know, my lack of interest in sports aside, I appreciate the skill and determination that the players put into it. So I don't want to belittle that. But I still don't, you know, fully understand the obsession with it. But it's interesting how they put these systems in place to prevent manipulation. The fascinating thing to me is sports now makes a lot of sense for people to be fascinated with it because of all the money involved. Back 50, 60 years ago, when people were really big sports fans and there was so little money involved in it, it's very interesting that it still had that cachet. I don't know, again, if it was as big. It definitely wasn't as big globally, but it was pretty big in the United States, especially baseball. Mm -hmm. And there was more money in baseball than the average American would make, but nothing compared to the salaries that players are making now than what people are making now. So to me, it's got to be more than just all the money in it. There's something inherent about competitiveness, about the purity of an invention with a set of rules that people all seem to enjoy. Yeah, and I think it's also people like to get behind, like patriotism, essentially, right? So micro-patriotism, right? I'm getting behind my city. Oh, yeah. It's a way for me to be supportive of my city, proud of my city. This is my team. And I remember growing up, I grew up in Jerusalem, and there was a kid in my class, and he was a fan of Maccabi Tel Aviv. He would wear Maccabi Tel Aviv jerseys to school. To school and, and obviously that wasn't the Jerusalem basketball team, right? And it was shocking to me that someone and he was a real person from Jerusalem. So that was just confusing. As, a fa- as opposed to those fake Jerusalem people, meaning it wasn't like he was born in Tel Aviv and right. moved to Jerusalem. Well, uh, the Maccabi Tel Aviv had a long history of excellence in Israeli basketball. So the bandwagon fan sounded like this kid was literally Mister Bandwagon fan. And to be fair, I was a little bit like when as a kid growing up, I loved Michael Jordan. He played in Chicago and beat the Rockets a lot, but he was so good. How can you not root for greatness? I find it interesting people that want to see the great ones fail because I would rather watch history. I want to watch somebody be the best at something. I love watching Tiger Woods, Roger Federer, Michael Jordan, Tom Brady. How do you not root for someone who's so good at what they do that you're watching history unfold? I agree. I mean, wishing negativity on someone is always a bad thing. And I'll say... I'm a Maple Leafs fan. We haven't won the Stanley Cup since 1967. And I still am the fan. So I, I agree. Ben Langening is whatever. Um, and wanting great people to fail, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. Well, that brings us up to our next subject, politics, where not only do great people not fail, they're typically not great people to begin with. It's a serious problem. I mean, I always think about all the strong people in business and medicine and all these other fields that if they were to go into politics, they probably would do well. But why on earth would they go into politics? Right. And there are exceptions to every rule, but a lot of the people that go into politics are megalomaniacs. Mm -hmm. Um, They're doing it for power. Um, 
a lot of them already have the financial success. Uh, so this is just the next logical step. Once you have the money, why not try to get for the power and the prestige? So, um, again, there are exceptions. Um, but this brings us to the first thing I wanted to talk about was this Kamala Harris interview with Lester Holt from NBC that, to me, was one of the more interesting conversations I've seen the mainstream medium conduct in a long time. Because normally, NBC, ABC, CBS have a more left liberal uh, slant. And again, we're going to get into a little of this in the next object about kind of where there isn't anything in the middle right now. When me and you are both pretty big moderates. Um, but gave an interesting interview with Kamala Harris, the current vice president, about why she has gone to the border. Biden put her in charge of the border and she's yet to go down there. So interestingly, he asked her about about what was going on with the border. And she kept saying, oh, we've gone to the border, blah, blah, blah. But he, he then followed up and said, you have gone to the border. And my favorite answer was, she, she said, no, I haven't, but I also haven't gone to Europe. It's like me saying, well, I'm in charge of Whole Foods. Um, I haven't gone to any Whole Foods, but I also haven't gone to any strip club. <laughs> it's like, what does one have anything to do with the other? Your job that Biden gave you is to go take care of this border crisis, and you haven't gone down there yourself to talk with people on the ground. Obviously, she's not going to see much when she's there for three hours or however long it is. But to not talk to the people on the ground or optically to not do that, to me, is mind-boggling. And the fact that NBC News is calling her out on this is not only surprising, but also shows that this is not just Republicans attacking her. It's it's people realizing this is an issue and being like, why are you doing anything? Yeah, I was surprised initially when I saw the headlines just about the interview. I immediately assumed that the interview would be with a more conservative news channel. And then I see, like, I think it was like Good Morning America. I think it was the... the yeah, it was, it was the Today Show, I think. Today Show. And I was just like... If this was a conservative news channel, that interview would have just, you know, harp on that. And he did just sort of let it go after that. He didn't really harp on it too much. Um, but her answer as the vice president is just not acceptable. And if anything, it was a negative reflection on him as a journalist to not dig into it or not to comment on what does Europe have to do with going to the Mexican border? Yeah, it's fascinating to me that somebody can look into the camera and just try to laugh at it. It's funny. Yeah. Whenever she gets in trouble, she laughs. Yeah. And to me, it's insulting to the American public about kind of what your job is and what you've been tasked with and how everything that's going on in the world is kind of like, eh, if I get to it, I get to it. If not, no big deal. Right. And the other thing is, is like when I look at this from a business perspective, right? And if your, you know, prime directive, so, you know, primary responsibility is addressing the problem at the border, then you shouldn't be doing anything else besides for that. Um, now, you can say she needs some time to figure things out, but, I, I mean, how much time do you actually need? And even if you're trying to figure things out, part of figuring it out is going to the border, seeing with your own eyes, talking to the people on the ground, and getting a sense of it. The fact that she, ha she has not done that, to me, is just reflective on a lack of priorities, and that, you know, they're not really taking the problem seriously, and it's a big problem. And, and what's even crazier is she's on the more moderate end of the Democratic Party, 
this isn't somebody who's far left, like the person we're about to talk about in a minute. Um, but it's kind of this neglect of duty. You've been assigned something, president said you're going to take care of it, and you're not really making any effort to combat the issue personally, or at least optically. Who knows? Why in the scene she could be doing some stuff, but optically, when somebody's been publicly tasked you with something and you won't go down, it, it makes zero sense. So. Yeah, I don't understand why she's not going down. Seems like it's a very simple thing to do. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. Um, and and it's, it's scary. I mean, if Biden doesn't run again, she's the presumptive nominee for the Democratic uh, presidential ticket in four years from now. Again, other people will run against her. But to see somebody that's already neglecting part of their duty and somebody who I feel will sway with the political wins. And if you see the political wins right now in each party, it's far either left or far right. And to have somebody that's not planted anywhere, it's pretty scary. Might be the head of one of the parties. I mean, I, I thank God every day that Joe Biden got the nomination, not Bernie Sanders, because everybody was like, oh, Bernie would never beat Trump. But he might have, and imagine the far-left policies would be at now. People think Biden is bad compared to Bernie Sanders. He's Ted Cruz. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the other part of it is that if she's, I mean, I guess it's sort of one of these assumptions that you make, but if she's not doing that, what else is she not doing? And it's just, it's just problematic. I mean, to me, it also is problematic the way she just sort of laughed it off. That's, you know, I don't like to harp on just one specific thing, but the way she handled it and just sort of dismissed it and saying, I don't understand why it's an issue. You don't understand why it's an issue, then that's an issue. (laughs) Exactly. And again, we're not going to only criticize Democrats. Uh, We will definitely criticize Republicans, especially the far ones that feel like um, interrupting our democracy on January 6th was part of their civic duty to prevent a fraud happening in the election when there were zero proof any fraud was happening. Uh, we can do an entire podcast to January 6th and the fact that all these people are still bending at the knee to Trump, who definitely incited that movement on January 6th. For people to not say that is insane, they called them out at first, and then all of a sudden, a week later, it was back to kissing the ring. And it's mind-boggling to me that there aren't more people with the backbone to say, you know what? I love being congressman or senator. And if you send somebody to try to primary me, fine. But I'm not going to bend at the knee to somebody who who led a revolution almost <laughs> January 6th. Yeah, I agree. So we can always get way more into that at a different one. But the next one, this just tweet happened today. Ilhan Omar, I'm going to read it out loud. Uh, this is her tweet again. She's far left. But typically, it's mostly critical of Israel, a little critical of the United States, too, but nothing compared to what I'm about to read. We must have the same, this is her words, we must have the same level of accountability and justice for all victims of crimes against humanity. We have seen unthinkable atrocities committed by the U.S., Hamas, Israel, Afghanistan, and the Taliban. I asked Secretary Blinken where people are supposed to go for justice. Equating the United States and Israel to Hamas, Afghanistan, and the Taliban. That's pretty a lot, even for her. So, I mean, the answer, first off, is really easy. Where are you supposed to go for justice? To the courts. 
right? right. There's an international court. There's domestic courts. Israel has courts. America has courts. I don't think the Taliban have courts. They have, uh, like, Sharia courts. Maybe. No, they're they caves hiding. I don't know how often they're convening courts. That's true. But <laughs> I, I would like to believe that at least they have enough ideals to... Does Hamas have courts? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You I know, know the Palestinians do, but I don't know if Hamas, the terrorist organization, has courts. In Israel, the state of Israel, there are there's the civil courts, there's Jewish courts, and the state recognizes Muslim courts. And those courts have the same bearing from like the religious rulings as the Jewish courts do. Um, so to answer her question, where are you supposed to go for justice? The answer is to the courts. Ilhan Omar, Tzedek Tzedek Tirdov, everywhere. <laughs> I mean, it's just so shocking to see that. And, and you know, what was it? Three weeks ago, there was the kerfuffle in Israel. Yeah. Um, and this rhetoric that she's sharing, I don't think would have happened before that. And what happened in that conflict where a lot more Arabs were killed um, in, in, in Gaza than um, Israelis were killed in Israel. Um, you know, they created this whole narrative around it of, you know, oh, you know, Israel's targeting civilians just like Hamas. Or, or they would say things like both sides. Right. And, and all of that has now spiraled into this, where suddenly there's this moral equivalence between established countries with rules, courts of law, proper police, accountability, and uh, thank you for more scotch. And, um, and suddenly we're being equated to Hamas, which is a straight up terrorist organization, Taliban, terrorist organization and the single and, worst terrorist event in United States history, 3000 people killed. I mean, it's insane to equate that, which targeted civilians with the U S which has definitely had war crimes happen. And Israel, I'm sure has had war crimes happen, but war being the key thing, the Taliban was not a war with the United States. They claim they were, but if only one side is fighting, it's not a war. The other side of it is also, yeah, yeah. And, and atrocities. Like, life is a violent experience to a certain extent. And these atrocities have always happened and they probably always will. And the, I don't want to say the good guys, because I don't know if there's good guys or bad guys, but the people that are fighting with certain rules of engagement do things to try to minimize civilian casualties. <laughs> and do they do a perfect job at it? No. They do a pretty decent job. I mean, even now in Iraq, where the Americans, I think there's like 2,500 soldiers left, but American forces are still engaged there. They're just doing much more targeted you know, operations, and they're doing more surgical strikes. And they're as a result, killing less civilians. So even America has adapted and said, you know, there's a way to fight this and, and sort of manage the situation without killing a lot of people. And everyone tries to do better. But the equating of those organizations to Israel and the United States, it just, 
you know, I believe everyone's entitled to their opinion, but to a certain extent, it delegitimizes what she says if she can run that type of moral equivalence. It also goes beyond the scope of the conversation. Like, there are defined kind of 95% of where people fall on between the left and the right. That opinion is definitely outside that 95%. Yeah. It just doesn't fall along the typical line of conversation that you will see in a civilized society. Yeah. Um, it's funny because you didn't see ABC go after her, CBS or NBC. I mean, we're giving Lester Hall all this credit for going after Kamala Harris, but this is something that is in some ways way beyond the pale of that, that somebody not neglecting their job, not equating the Israel and the United States with a terrorist organization. Yep. But there's a lack of a middle organization. You have CNN, ABC, CBS, all on the right. You have Fox News on the right. Um, sorry, on the left. They're all on the left. Fox News on the right. And CBN. CBN. Yeah. And the all, US. What is it? US One News World News. One World. Yeah. All these crazy right wing stuff. And you have MSNBC on the left, too. And there's nothing in the middle. Literally, none of those organizations can criticize both sides. And that's probably still where 50% of America is, or maybe 40% of America. You have 30 on the far right, 30 on the far left, um, or 30% left and far left, 40% right and far right. And that middle 30 to 40% has nowhere to turn. And that's turned people into apathy and just saying, why would I ever get involved in politics? There's nowhere I can hear how I feel. And to me, how nobody has come out with this modern organization. I mean, there's also no third party in the United States of any significant size in the middle, which maybe you could find a stream where you create a party and this news network type media organization that can go in the middle. Like maybe Wall Street Journal should start running political candidates and calling them um, the Democrat Republican journalists. I mean, Although that sounds ridiculous, but you understand what I'm saying. We bring in a marketer to come up with a better name. Exactly. So the other side also, because you made a good point, which made me think about the long tail, right? Like the internet created the long tail where all of a sudden, you know, I may be into some random Korean anime about samurais in the 14th century. And in the past, I would be completely isolated. And suddenly the internet comes along. And not only can I find more of that media, but I can find people that are like-minded. And the danger with the apathy that, that is created by the polarization is that then people that, from that apathy, people sort of find those pockets that fit their unique, rare sort of perspective. And because of that, they almost become more extreme, or they have a propensity to become more extreme. And that's also a problem. And if you had a source or sort of a middle ground where people didn't just have to, like, just have to go all the way to the right or go all the way to the left, that would also make a big difference. The, the biggest problem to me is that the media is all about money. Right. And it's sort of similar to what you were talking about with basketball, right? Bigger games, bigger teams becomes more interesting. News is the same thing, right? So you have journalism, which is about telling a story, gathering facts, conveying that, and they really need to make sure that they sort of maintain facts. But at the same time, they're they're 
pitching an agenda on both sides. And, and again, people just, you know, feel like they can't, if they can't relate to that, then they end off isolating or going into like a echo chamber that can potentially radicalize them. Yeah, it's a, it's really a giant issue in this country. And I have yet to see anybody with a real game plan of how to centralize the middle. And I haven't heard it in local news. I haven't heard it in national news. And I mean, maybe it's going to be up to us. I don't know if <laughs> right now we have our podcast, our podcast, finding the middle, the, finding the middle, the, the two guys who say the United States, it's going to be the headline of the Wall Street Journal. Don't worry. And how we'll make millions of dollars off this podcast as a result yeah, of creating the We'll movie. make millions of dollars other ways. We can just make centralizing. Uh, honestly, there are certain things more than the, more important than money, and creating a strong middle in this country is honestly one of them. Yeah, I agree. Um, speaking of creating a strong sense of history and knowledge of, of politics and getting people less apathetic is also letting people know more about the historical event anniversaries coming up. You mentioned to me earlier that Biden didn't mention that this past Sunday was the 77th anniversary of D-Day. Um, I remember Trump put out a tweet uh, showing the Higgins boats, Higgins boats landing on Omaha Beach. It was an amazing picture. We remember D-Day, which literally, if not for that successful invasion, I spent a lot of time in college and high school on this specific date, uh, literally changed the outcome of the world. If that had not been successful, who knows how long the world would have lasted. Maybe there would have been a separate peace with Germany. And the world we live in today would probably look vastly different if those landings had not been successful. So 77th anniversary of that, I had the pleasure of interviewing um, a World War II soldier, Ken Irving Dean, who was the cantor at our synagogue, mm-hmm. United Orthodox Synagogues, for a very long time. And um, and it was really a great experience to interview him and hear his story. He landed D plus 10, 10 days after D day. Um, I fought in the Battle of the Bulge, another historic battle that, again, if the Nazis had broken through, again, would have made the war last a lot longer. Um, and, and also, I was going back to Omar's tweet um, and the history of the Israeli-Palestinians to be like, well, more German soldiers died in World War II than United States soldiers. They were probably in the wrong, the United States, for killing so many German Nazis. I mean, it's literally the same thing with Israel and Palestinians in terms of equating the numbers. It's like, well, because you were the more successful army, had less casualties, you're in the wrong. It's insane to equate legitimacy with what you do to the number of casualties you sustain. Yep. By the way, in that rationale, the Russians were the best and the you know most um, ethical at yeah, the time because, because the most Russians died. Oh my God! Like a whole generation of Russians like never saw the light of day because of World War Two. Yeah. So you know from that same and by the way, Stalin was not a very kind man, as you may know. Oh. As a <laughs> so so I'm just saying like it's amazing. That, Stalin. A lot of people don't think he was as bad as he was because it was Hitler existed at the same time. So it's like, oh well, at least he wasn't Hitler. Well, Stalin killed almost as many people as Hitler did. So it's not like it's like one A and one B, not like one and a distant two. Correct. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the other thing that's interesting, you said this in the beginning, um, you know, I think very much, very highly of American ingenuity. The Higgins boat, you know, the story with that, where they had all these big ship companies that were coming up with these landing crafts, and then along comes whatever his name is, Higgins, and he comes with his contraption, 
And it was better than anything they were able to produce in that entrepreneurial spirit. Also, I think it's important to recognize um, ahead of, the, you know, not ahead of, but in sort of recognizing GAs. So it's impressive. Yeah. And the fact that they had the b- balls, for a better word, to go through with it when the weather was bad, when <clears throat> there was the furthest point across the channel, when leaks, he, Hitler had reserve panzer divisions that he could have called upon. I mean, a lot of things you could either argue was luck, preparation, a little bit of both. Timing. Uh, that timing. Thank God it worked out because my guess is neither of us would be sitting here right now if it didn't. So. Uh, I may be. Okay, I would be. Yeah. My parents <laughs> um, were both born in Canada along with my grandparents. But you're right. And I mean, there's so many other factors that come into it. Yeah, who knows what the last 75 years of history would have looked like. Yeah, it would have been very different. Even, even by the way, if they had still lost the war, you just would have had more American casualties. You know, maybe Japan would have been a bit more bold or aggressive. You know, there's so many different factors that could have come into play. So thank you, soldiers of D-Day. And Kanner Dean, who just passed away recently this year, uh, it was an amazing man, one of my heroes, and wanted to mention his name whenever I hear the words D-Day. So uh, moving on to something completely different topic. Yesterday was also the 31st anniversary of Universal Studios Orlando. So I saw I had for my 35th, 30th birthday, I had Mark Summers who came to do my double day birthday. You unfortunately couldn't make it. You had some family event. One of Tanya's sisters had a baby. I don't know, some nonsense like that. Um, Creation. Always getting in the way. Anyway, uh, it was an amazing birthday, but I saw him post a video of that event. And Spielberg cut the ribbon because, again, Universal was very much involved with his films at the time. And Mark Summers was standing right behind him. Got literally the prime spot that footage continues to live to this day, standing right behind Spielberg. So what's interesting about that is there's only one attraction left from opening day that is still in existence. I'm serious, curious if you can guess what it is. Have you ever been to Universal Orlando? Nope. Any of you? Disney. Oh, okay. So it's the E.T. ride. And literally that was Spielberg's main film at the time, popularity-wise, I mean, it was already eight years old by then when it opened in 91. Um, but one of the long-lasting films, and it's the only original attraction still ongoing at Universal Studios. You ride, like, the E.T. bicycle? Yeah, you ride the bicycle. Yeah. That's great. Uh, yeah. And the smell, when you're waiting to board the ride, I bought a candle to try to capture that smell. It doesn't do it justice. It's, like, one of my favorite smells in the world. It's, like, this it? musty, foresty smell. That's and it's really, really cool. And literally, I want to go back to Universal. My kids are too young right now to appreciate it. But in a few years, hopefully they don't get rid of the ride. I mean, it's made it 31 years. You have to hope that it will make it another 5 to 10 just to smell that smell again, which is odd. Because it's the only smell that I have such a strong memory of. I, there's no other real smells that I'm like, wow, I can't wait to smell that again. Hmm. Interesting. So hopefully, and hopefully we'll join it. This smell, you know, you just talk about it and I can sort of, I can imagine it. And I think about the movie and I say, you know what? A musky, woodsy smell. That makes sense. I also think like, now when I think about the movie, 
I always sort of thought that E.T. would have had, like, this sort of, like, um, I want to say, like, moist, not moist, because moist isn't the right word, but this sort of, He was very wrinkly. Right, he was very wrinkly. damp smell to him, so I feel like that would also make sense. Well, congrats to them on lasting this long. Yeah, I mean, to me, the biggest shame was when they replaced uh, Back to the Future ride with the Simpsons ride, a a Shonda that will live on in infamy. Uh, by replacing the Back to the Future ride, it's my all-time favorite movie, and I've ridden the Simpsons ride since then, and it pales in comparison. Um, I know you're a big Simpsons fan, so for you, it probably would be great. But after riding the Back to the Future ride, and it was groundbreaking at the time to have your vehicle literally move based off of the film being projected in front of you. Um, but that was one of my all-time favorite rides. I even went to California before it closed out there to ride it one last time. Um, back, this is be, I think it was like 05 or maybe 07. I don't know. I have so two, two questions. questions. First of all, did, did they, they just, just recycle the ride and make it Simpsons, Simpsons or did they just break it down, down and build something? No, they recycled it and made it the Simpsons. Okay. And do they properly glorify Homer in the Simpsons ride? It's more of Springfield and all the characters than just Homer himself. But I still think you would really enjoy it. But, um, but it has another thing with nostalgia. Now nostalgia, you see all these TV shows coming back, movies being recreated. It'd be fascinating to know if any of these theme parks should bring back some of these older rides because of the nostalgia factor to get people to come back just to go on the rides. Maybe you make them a little bit of time, especially back to the future ride where you could do very minimal work. I mean, you're not going to remake the vehicles look like the DeLorean again, but you could still give people a similar thing and bring it back for a weekend every year or something. It just fascinates me that the theme parks haven't jumped on the nostalgia train like the other things did. Like there's this, Fast and the Furious ride at Universal that ended up getting replaced up to three years because it wasn't good. Um, why not go with a tried and true formula when you have a lot of people who are kids who rode those things back at the time? Now they're adults. God, I would be back at Universal in a heartbeat this time if I knew Back to the Future was back. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, the nostalgia thing is interesting. I was, at, I was running an errand today. And I saw teenagers wearing Back to the Future t-shirts. But I'm not 100% sure that they even know what that is. Like, maybe they just bought, like, an ironic t-shirt. Like, oh, let's go Back to the Future. That's, like, this... They may not understand it's a movie. Right. Uh, but well, I agree. I tend to think they know it's a movie. The question is, have they ever even seen it? Well, but... They just thought it was a cool shirt. But the, the other side of it is, is that we're actually at the age where we're coming into a segment of the population that is basically not marketed to right marketing right now if you look at it it's like old people right it's it's the young people it's it's the 18 to 39 demographic i think it is the huge one and then it's like 50 plus yeah in that what's funny is that 40 to 50 demographic because they either have young kids or that they're so distracted by everyday life i think the marketing i think it's 18 to 29 is the big demographic that a lot of the networks really care about. So, um, <coughs> but I mean, I the most neglected. dollars, but the most dollars are still within the 35 to 60 demographic. Right. But most of my money is being spent by my children. Yeah. But you're different because you're paying for private school education. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. But, but even so, so, that could be an entire topic. Yeah. Let's not. 
That's not going to happen. But <laughs> no, we're but, not here to depress anybody. Yeah. Um, but, but I do think, think that I see, like, like my children, children shop, whereas I, like, pick, pick up necessities, necessities right? right? You know, it's, it's like, like when, when my underwear has holes in it, I get new underwear, right? right? When, when my t-shirts are worn out, I get new t-shirts. But my kids are like, I want the basketball or I want, you know, a so, device. I'm s- so I was like, the, like your kids as a kid, though. I think it has to do with the fact that I grew up in the United States and your kids grew up in the United States. You grew up in Israel. In Israel, it was a more necessity-based place. And in the United States, the marketing dollars thrown at you to want stuff. I mean, I, I still, with clothes, I'm like with you. I'm the same way. I don't buy stuff unless I need it. Yeah. But with other items that I definitely don't need, I buy all the time. I claim to myself to tell myself it's an investment. But it's hard to make an investment if you never plan on selling it. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it becomes hoarding at that point. Um, but... I think that's a consumerism of how they're growing up and how I grew up versus how you grew up. That's a fair point. Which may, yeah. And I, I always want, like, I'm somewhat of a minimalist. And I guess it's a good point. I think it has to do with where you grew up. Yeah, I'll take it. Um, so that was kind of my uh, anniversary history uh, talk for this podcast. And now we get to talk about my favorite thing, random stuff. So my favorite thing about random stuff is the government just released um, a new report about, I'm going to use the right term here, unidentified aerial phenomena. So it's the same exact thing as UFOs, but they're calling them UAPs to not freak anybody out and to take all that UFO mythology, trying to make it sound less crazy. And what's amazing to me is that because they've changed the letters, nobody in mainstream media is picking this up, or very minimally. And literally, it just came out of the report, all these Navy ships, they've been interviewing all these people on these boats, they've seen all this stuff, which again, it's a national security threat. You're seeing all these different aerial phenomena, flying objects that nobody understands, defying laws of gravity, defying the laws of physics, and defying any type of technology that anybody's currently working on right now. And it came out this report that it's conclusive, not American science, but also not conclusive that it's alien technology, which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard because how are they gonna prove that it was alien? Unless they capture one of these ships. And if they capture one of these ships, there's no way they're telling the American public, oh, good news, everybody. We found it's alien. You can all go back and relax now. So I actually am, I've thought about this a bit, and I actually think it's scarier than that, because what stood out to me was one of the things I was reading about how these flying, whatever, what do they call them, aerial phenomena? Unidentified aerial phenomena. Unidentified flying objects. One of these these instances, um, they described it as like a swarming of a Navy ship. And the reason that was scary to me, and especially when the sort of the, they're being very quiet about it, is because I actually don't think it's alien. Separate conversation. I think we're the spearhead of existence in the universe. Separate conversation. But I don't think that these are necessarily alien technology. What I do think is that 
is a hostile or not friendly nation probing? Because if I'm looking at American power, the Navy is one of the strongest forms of projection of American power. And in reality, there's no conventional naval force out there that can contest the American Navy, right? If all of the world's navies together came up against the United States, they would probably not be able to match firepower. So when I read about this thing about them swarming Navy ships, I just got really nervous because it makes me wonder, it's probably not aliens. And if it is some sort of hostile country probing, then that, at least to me, signals that there's people that are trying to figure out how, how do we knock this giant down? So I will give the counterpoint to that. I think the technology and what these people are describing is so beyond anything that we're even potentially working on. Again, we don't know half the things we're working on, but these were high-ranking military people. And if they thought this was in the realm of possibility that this was another foreign government or entity that was controlling these things, they would chalk it up to that. They were saying they have no idea how any of these aircrafts function like that. These are people who spend their whole lives in the military industrial complex. So to me, it's more likely that even if it's not an alien, it's maybe somebody outside of simulation. Maybe it's, 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 it just seems like it's somebody watching and probing, but not nearly a threat because if they had the power and ability to execute the maneuvers that these ships are executing, they probably would have the capability to destroy America if they wanted to also. So my gut tells me that this isn't anything of our current world. Call it alien, call it a giant simulation, call it, un- it's definitely unexplainable because that's literally in the word. And, um, but the truth hopefully is out there. <laughs> well, I will say that if I was building drone technology, because the whole gravity-defying flight... And by alien, it could also be drone technology, alien drone technology. But drones are able to maneuver in a way that airplanes aren't. So, you know, to me, I look and I say, if you have a really advanced drone, maybe you've built a vertical takeoff and landing jet drone or subsonic drone, right? Okay. Maybe a country... Probably supersonic, by the way, this thing was moving. Whatever, or, you know, you built this technology and now you're testing it out. If you send five of these or 10 of these, even the most advanced technology, these ships can take care of it. But if you can build these things and you can build a thousand of them and they swarm an aircraft carrier, that to me is really scary. And the reason I went to the swarming strategy is because that's what let's just say, a country like Iran, if they were to go to war with America, the first thing they would do is they have, I don't know how many thousands of these little speedboats with explosives on them that they plan to swarm the Navy with. Because the Navy is designed to take out other navies. But if you have a thousand little boats flying at you, even if you open up with everything you've got, some of them are going to get through. And just a few of them getting through is enough to knock out an aircraft carrier. So... 
you knock, knock down, down an aircraft, aircraft carrier, you're talking, talking about demoralizing, you know, we were talking about the hot hand fallacy. This is the opposite of it. Like America's aircraft carriers are a symbol of pride and strength. And so that's why to me, when I saw this whole thing and the way the government is handling it, I think it's, it could be aliens. I'm not dismissing that. Like, I think it's possible. It's like it could be another country. You can't dismiss anything. That's the amazing thing with this thing. You can't dismiss anything. And that's kind of what the report said. But the fact that nobody's covering this thing and people just going yeah. about their everyday lives, not wanting to know how something this unexplainable is happening. And for, especially for public safety on alien, non-alien public safety. I mean, is this the beginning of 1996 independence day or the beginning of world war three between us and I'm trying to think of the technology advanced country in this country that could be pulling off. Let's say Russia for some example. Um, so, but at least we can have Domino's Pizza delivered to us in an autonomous vehicle. Well, that's what's important in the United States of America. So. Right. And it's scary to think about the fact that this may be something that could potentially hit and damage what is so core to American power. So I'm not surprised that people don't want to necessarily think about that because then you know, it sort of ruins their tranquility. The other interesting thing to me is that how you have kind of these technological um, innovators, Jeff Bezos, um, Elon Musk, not commenting on this either. You'd think that because they're at the forefront of this stuff, they would weigh in and be like, well, this is not something I've ever seen before. Like imagine somebody who's working on all these new tech things trying to get to space and you're hearing from leading scientists. I mean, you're already hearing from leading scientists, but the average American he, hearing from somebody who they see their name all over the news commenting on this, I, I think they've remained silent on this specifically for that reason. Because if somebody with that type of media power commented on this, I think there would be way more of a panic in the United States. Justified or not. Right. Uh, it's, it's great. There's a movie I was just reminding me of um, – uh, with Gerard Butler that just came out. Um, they all go to... Uh, this is down. No, no, no. It, this just came out. It's about the end of the world. They all have to escape to Greenland. Oh, I, saw, I didn't watch it. Did you watch I watched it? it. I watched it. Was it good? Not really, but it was a fun B-movie. They basically recycled the plot of 2012. The, uh, um, literally. Greenland? Yeah. Greenland is where they have underground bunkers to keep us from this comet that was in the United States. But the thing that I liked about it was that the utter chaos, once it was announced that this comet was going to hit Earth, and if you weren't among those spared, just the total outlaw and destabilization of society. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is fear number one if all of a sudden mass Americans believe that the country was in that. Now, an alien threat could unite us. Because it would be all have to huddle together to try to figure a way to beat this rather than something that's definitely like a comet that is like a, a, a nuclear comet that will create a nuclear winter that is a devastating impact that is going to happen and, we ha- and it will happen to us no matter what. At least with an alien thing, people might be stupid enough or maybe not stupid enough, but if the technology is that strong, stupid enough to believe that they can combat it. Deep impact also. It's, it's a great movie. I, I love those cons- in late 90s disaster movies. Yeah. I actually like Deep Impact way better than Armageddon. Because Armageddon was like a love story wrapped up in a disaster movie 
Deep Impact was a disaster movie that had some of those elements in it. Liv Tyler. Yeah, but Deep Impact was a better movie. Steve Buscemi. Um, it was more entertaining. Yes. In that sense, Buscemi's awesome. Um, but I, I like Deep Impact more because it just felt more like uh, this is likely what would happen if this were to actually happen. Armageddon just was almost borderline farce. Like, oh, we're going to send a group of drillers to go onto a comet to drill to drop a nuke. <laughs> like, okay. The best part is in the director's cut, um, Ben Affleck was on doing commentary saying, why would you have drillers become astronauts to get rid of the bomb? Why not just train the astronauts to drill? <laughs> It'd be way easier. And the director told him to shut the fuck up. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> way, now our podcast is officially R-rated thanks oh. to your... Uh... Potty mouth, but that's cool. We'll give us a specific segment of the demographic. It's PG 13. I think you're allowed one F word and can keep it PG 13 according to the MPA rules, actually. For real, for real. How on earth do you know that? Um, I have a lot of useless knowledge. That is by far the most useless piece of knowledge you've ever shared with me. Oh, although now, now it becomes very relevant. Yeah, so I think uh, we can still be past this PG 13 and we can edit that out, but then it's not as organic. So what was interesting about Deep Impact when I saw that, and I guess it came out of what, like 96? Uh, I think it was 98. 98. So I was 15. Yeah, I was 12. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, the government is going to hide that from me? And uh, That's probably the most realistic thing about all those movies, the government hiding it from the people. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. Yeah. Well, well, and the fakest thing was that it actually stays a secret. Right. That would never happen. No. Um, so, so the good news is that there was a comet heading towards us. We can be confident that someone, somewhere would leak it to the news. And honestly, that's why I'm a big believer that more of our resources should be spent trying to make ourselves an interplanetary species. Well, that's what we're doing. What? That's what we're doing. Yeah, but it's all private dollars. There should be some federal uh, and governmental dollars going towards it also. By the way, back to my spearhead of existence in the universe, you know, well, I guess it comes back to the definition of life, and then there's a whole other podcast. But I think that Earth, water, oxygen, proximity to the sun, you know, we haven't been able to find that combination anywhere else. Well, that's called the Goldilocks zone, and what they've actually now found is there are like millions of planets that fit it. It's just very far from us, and we don't have the technology to find them. With water? Actually, with water. These places are so far away, they have no idea if they have water or not. Also, I mean, to say that other forms of life, even like that are water based, yeah, yeah carbon sure. based, right? They may not need the sun, exactly. I mean, I, I think the human mind is so far beyond minimal compared to other forms of potential intelligence out there. Literally, it could be different wavelengths. For all we know, there are aliens sitting across from us right now as we do this podcast invisible on a different wavelength laughing at the stupidity of what we're doing it's probably entertaining um somewhat or it's so stupid that it's like they just changed the channel um uh for lack of a better word um but well i'm i'm gonna counter that because as a human i don't appreciate having my intelligence so devalued i think it's not that human intelligence is Less is that we utilize so small of it, such a small part of it, of our brains. Um, 
but that would still mean that our intelligence right now is still very minimal. You're basically still saying the same thing. Our potential for intelligence. Uh, we just we need an alien technology to unlock the full use of our brains to make ourselves feel better about how smart we are. Um, that could be a good goal. I, I actually think that just as a species, I mean, I think we're probably killing the planet right now. And any planet stupid enough to kill the thing that's been sustaining them, the species that's sustaining them, does not have that high of a level of intelligence. To be fair, we've only been here for like 200,000 years. Out of the, I don't know, let's just say hundreds of millions of years of the planet. And we've done more damage in the last hundred yeah. than those previous 199,900 combined. Yeah. So you can argue that we're actually getting dumber as a species rather than smarter. Before we were destroying the planet, we were just killing each other constantly. Once we stopped killing each other, we started killing the planet. We're still killing each other, too. That's true. Unfortunately, that hasn't stopped. But it was interesting. One of the things I thought about, and we're going to probably close in a minute because even our children probably couldn't listen to us for more than an hour. Um, I think that the world was about as safe as a place as it ever has been during the pandemic. People were so concerned with catching this disease. I mean, you got it, not a secret. Um, and it did a number on you for a little bit. But uh, as a whole, this wasn't Ebola going around. And the world had these really strong overreactions to it, mostly. Um, some countries figured it out a lot quicker. They had the right reaction to it. Um, but as a whole, the world is still overreacting to it. Um, you could also just tell senior citizens, people are stay home, let the rest of the world get back to normal. I mean, the nonsense and the political football that this coronavirus became was something outstanding that we've never seen with another virus in the world. Um, but it wasn't Ebola and people were safe. They were at home mostly. Again, I don't want to minimize anybody that passed away from it or got really sick from it. But at the same time, in the grand scheme of things, this was not like the flu of the 1920s in terms of deaths. It wasn't like um, the bubonic plague, other pandemics throughout history. This was mild by comparison. Just the spread was way crazier because of our global society. But it was as if for about six, seven months, almost worldwide peace broke out. Mm -hmm. And the question is, at what point do you create fake pandemics to keep people from killing each other. I, uh, again, I'm not recommending it. I, I think there's a value. Mild pandemic. Mild pandemic. <laughs> Don't kill anybody because you might get mildly sick. Um, it it's just to me, it, it did work. Um, if human society can figure it out during a pandemic to kind of limit casualties and intercountry strife during a pandemic, why can't we figure it out? the rest of the damn time. Yeah. And yeah. maybe we need an alien force out there to kind of unite us as a species, hopefully not to attack it because that's probably very, very stupid unless they're trying to destroy us. Um, but maybe something to maybe raise that intelligence level, as you say, from using 10% of our brains to using a lot more of it. So this world can figure out a way to coexist harmoniously. Yeah. And I, I agree. And what, I think a big part of what COVID did was it just changed people's priorities 
And but the question is how long that'll last. Right. It, it, it's over. Yeah. It's done. Right. You're already seeing crime increasing and you see conflict increasing. Yeah. And so it's over. That, that period is done. So I think it's more about how do we enable those that have the luxury to not just be focused on their survival, to have different priorities. And for, and for those, those that, that are focused on their survival, that aren't, aren't more you know, established countries, countries, how do we help them elevate? And, and then maybe, maybe just maybe, we can have that. I think that's a great note to finish up. Um, I think that is it for our first podcast. Um, We'll hopefully have the technology figured out better so I don't sound like I'm swinging my words half the time. Um, and we'll listen back to it. Who knows? Maybe I sound incredible. But <laughs> my guess is that this uh, will be something we look back on and be like, let's never listen to that again. Let's listen to uh, podcast number seven. We nailed that one. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming it. over tonight and doing it. I think this is a fun thing. And I think next time I want to try – letting you do the agenda and me responding to said agenda. Okay. Um, and I think that's good back and forth because at least to me, I find it a little easier to respond when given a prompt rather than creating said prompt. Yeah. Yes. I enjoyed that. Yeah. It's much more fun challenging your ideas than having come up with my own original ideas, but I welcome it. And I'll do that. I think it'll be fun. People will switch off each one. Yeah. And, um, Eight minutes and 35 seconds left between the Jazz and the Clippers. And so far, my my hypothesis that the Jazz without Conley would uh, just tank has not happened yet. So, again, it's a long series. It's first to win four games. But um, maybe one individual player's injury who's an all-star isn't that um, vital. But we'll, we'll end up being seen there at home. Uh, the Clippers just got off a seven-game series. They're probably a little tired. Um, and again, Clippers could still win. It's a five-point game. But yeah. um, I, I do think injuries this postseason have really changed sports. But again, we have already discussed that. So we will end the podcast here. Thank you, Mr. Levenstein. Thank you, Mr. Misner. It's been a pleasure. This has been... Hold on, we have to remember the name of the podcast. The Weekly Four Podcast. Oh, yeah. I will definitely forget it by the next time. <laughs> have a good night, everyone. Good night.